Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. We are currently in stage two of our COVID-19 response where the church building is open for you to join us in person for worship. However, we will continue to broadcast the service live at 10 a.m. each week. Now, here's this week's message. I don't, I don't know about you, but who I just didn't, had a good time of worship this morning. Amen? I wasn't, I wasn't worried about and You know what happens when you come in and you're not worried about what anybody else is doing? You're not worried about what else is going on and you just sit down and start praising God? It's amazing on how it works so much better like that, isn't it? And I was just over there just, man, enjoying the Lord. I want them to come back up and do it again. But it's my turn, so we will... We, we will go. So tomorrow, today we're in part three of a, well, it was supposed to be a three-week series. It's now a five-week series. So in part three of our series titled, Let's Talk About Sex. And so what that means is if you have a, a young person or child, elementary age, or you're watching at home and someone young, what I just said was like, oh, no, they shouldn't have heard that. Well, you may want to remove them from the viewing area because everything else I'm going to say you may not want them to hear as well, especially today. So Uh, Just be mindful of that. We'll give you a couple of seconds or press pause. I guess if you're at home, you can work it out. So, because today we're going to talk about unhealthy sexual expressions. Remember the first week we talked about healthy sex. Then we talked about kind of our posture towards it last week. And today we're going to talk about unhealthy. It's better known as, well, sexual morality. Now for me, I like to... Uh, have this conversation as healthy versus unhealthy. And I hope it will allow you, I hope it will allow me, in fact, I hope it will allow us to start having these conversations a bit better in our culture, in our communities, and perhaps even at home. Because today, and in, in, in this climate especially, if you say something is right or wrong, people start really digging their heels in about what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. And it, and it postures people just to start arguing, and it, and it puts this posture of, of conflict. For instance, I personally, and I don't know about you, but I'm just telling you my story, I personally love pizza and cake. <laughs> Favorite foods. Anybody else? If it were up to me, and I'm not exaggerating, I would eat it every single day for every single meal. And if you were to tell me why that was wrong, I would want to argue with you. You say, Brian, you can't do that. That's wrong. I'd say, well, why can't I do it? You say, well, it's just not wrong. Well, so that assumes that me and you have the same definition of what's right and wrong. And this is where things do get subjective. And and we'll talk about it for just a second. This isn't a philosophical conversation. I just need to get you where we're going. You see, if we don't have the same definition of right, then we can't ever decide what's right and wrong. And so you may say, well, Brian, eating cake and ice cream is wrong because, you know, you won't live a long life. Well, what if I wasn't looking at quantity of life, how long I lived? What if I was looking at quality of life? And to me, what I think is right is I should eat whatever I want, how often I want, and then I die when I die because of my diet. That, what if that was right to me? You say, well, Brian, you shouldn't believe that. I said, oh, that's when we're going to have this conversation. And it gets all messy and it gets all weird. However, however, what if we change the conversation between right and wrong to unhealthy and healthy? So if I said I love eating cake and pizza, and that's all I wanted to eat. If you say, well, Brian, that's unhealthy. Could I argue with that? 
I cannot, it's unhealthy. Like that's pretty clear. Can't really argue if it's unhealthy. In fact, if you were to tell me it's unhealthy, check this out. It now gives you the ability to say it's unhealthy for whether if I want to live a long time or the quality of life because eating cake and uh, pizza and cake, stuff like that, it's not going to lead to a good quality of life no matter how long it is. Are you following me? Yeah, so if I start using healthy or unhealthy, it now allows me to argue from whatever position you may take. It's very interesting what happens when we change our words. It's very interesting what happens. It'll start allowing us to have a conversation. And as Christians, you have to remember something. While we do stand on truth, we want to stand on truth and then engage with people to actually be able to hear the truth. And sometimes we want to talk about truth and we don't know how to properly have a conversation and properly dialogue to where we shut down people to where they can't hear that truth that we have. Does that make sense? And so what I believe is a conversation of healthy, unhealthy. Well, it changes the dynamics and now allows us to start having a conversation because if you say something's unhealthy, what I hear is that you're concerned for me. Brian, that's unhealthy. I hear you caring about me. When I hear you say it's wrong, I hear you talking about some philosophical truth. But healthy, now you're concerned about me as a human being, and I want to hear that. And so those of you who say, well, Brian, I don't even want to get in conversations. I just want to mind my own business. I don't even want to tell people it's right and wrong or healthy, unhealthy. I'm just going to do my own thing, live my own life. I have news for you this morning, and that news is that conflict is already happening. It's not a choice whether or not you engage in conflict. And I'm not talking about, you know, elections or out there. I'm talking there's already a conflict going on in here. There's a conflict raging inside each and every one of us. And what we need to do is make sure we're looking at what's going on in here rather than look what's going on out there. Because if I look at what's going on in here, it'll allow me to deal with what's going on out there far more. Oh, it'll allow me to deal with it much better. Especially when it comes to sexual immorality. That's why Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Remember, this is our memory verse. It says, flee from sexual morality. Flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? Remember, we talked about that first week. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, the reason why Paul can say flee or run, get away from sexual morality, is because it's something that every single human being will be tempted with. Every single human being will be tempted with sexual morality. So Paul just says, run from it. Don't see how close you can get. Don't see how far you can go. Don't get this far just to move the line then that far. He says, no, no, when it comes to sexual morality, just run from it because nobody's strong enough to, to dabble in this and overcome it. The reason why I believe that is because of King David, right? King David's described in the Old Testament as a man after God's own heart. He is known as the guy who just loves the Lord, wrote Psalm 23, right? Just an amazing uh, godly figure. But what was his greatest downfall? Sexual morality. What did his son pick up from him? Sexual morality. What broke the kingdom and their family? Sexual morality. Does it still happen today? Yeah. Unfortunately, it still does. But Paul says, run from it, because look at this. Don't change the slide. He said, run from it, because your body is a what? Nope. Go back. Your body's a temple. 
Your body's a temple. Your body's a temple because the Holy Spirit has come and dwelled within you. Paul says that we have been given an inheritance, a deposit of the things to come. The Holy Spirit has come and resided in us if you are a Christian. So if, if God, if the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, that means your body is now holy. Your body is now a temple. And then he says, in fact, you were bought with a price. So not only is God living inside of you, you've been purchased. You've been paid for. Who paid for you? Christ on the cross. It's the idea of he redeemed us. He paid for you. And so if Jesus is your Lord, did you know this is what that means? If Jesus is in charge, if Jesus is your Messiah, if Jesus is the one leading, that means you are not to include your sexuality. If you've given Jesus your life, you've given him your sexual expressions. If you've given Jesus everything else, you've also given him that. It's not this separate thing out here. If Jesus is in charge, that means you're not. And he redeemed and bought your life by his death on the cross, which is why Paul says there's only one logical conclusion. It's to honor God with your bodies because the Holy Spirit's living inside of you because he has paid for you, redeemed you by his blood. Therefore, the only logical thing to do is because God's in you and he, God has bought you, honor God with your bodies. It's not even yours, it's God's and he's living in there. He's residing, it's his. So luckily for us, he teaches us how. So with Brian or Paul, what does honoring your body look like? I mean, what does that mean? Culture's changing, but Brian, we live at the beach. It's a whole lot different moving anywhere else to come to an area that lives at the beach. That honoring God with your body just starts looking all sorts of different ways on how that applies. You don't believe me? I promise you. Because it's a different culture. You're in a very different culture here with what's acceptable and not acceptable. So what does it look like to honor God with your bodies? We're going to jump into Galatians now where Paul has um, acknowledged that they are free in Christ but they're not to use their freedom in Christ to indulge in sin. They're not to say, I'm free, that means I can do whatever I want. Paul's like, no, 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 silly. That doesn't work that way. So he's gonna explain what it looks like to be free in Christ and honor God with your bodies. This is a lifestyle led by the Spirit. Look at this, Galatians 5, 16, he says this. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the Gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So they are in conflict with each other. So well, Brian, I didn't sign up for that. It doesn't matter. This is the way the world works. This is where human beings are. We have the spirit and then there's the flesh and they're in conflict with each other. This is the world you were born into. So Paul says, walk by the spirit. Remember, you're not doing this alone. You're not on your own. You have the power of God residing inside of us and our, our body is just this earthly tent. So walk by the Spirit because there's a conflict going on for God's will in your life. Did you know that? There's a conflict going on in your life right now for God's will for your life. So, Brian, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. It doesn't, doesn't matter. You can give in to the fleshly ways. Or you can walk by the Spirit. You can walk by the flesh, or you can walk by the Spirit. And we better understand that this is a real, true conflict that every single human being is facing right now. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. 
This is the state. We've heard of spiritual warfare. This is fleshly warfare. This isn't talking about demonic forces and some of the things that, you know, people don't want to talk about or think is weird. No, no, we're not talking about that. We'll talk about that in a different sermon series. Stay tuned. We'll talk about it. This is talking about what's going on in here. That in here we all have this battle of flesh versus spirit. And there's no such thing as a neutral walk. You see, what Paul tells us is that a spirit, walking by the spirit or a lifestyle led by the spirit, will lead to a healthy life. Jesus called it an abundant life. If you walk by the spirit, if you walk by his leading, it'll lead to healthy. If you walk by the flesh, which is contrary to the spirit, we'll call that unhealthy. I think at least in church we would agree, following what God's will for your life is probably the healthiest thing you can do, yes? Ignoring God's will for your life is probably the unhealthiest thing you could do for your life. So there's no neutral walk. You have to go one way or the other, and none of us are are immune to this. So because of this battle, look at what Paul says. He said there's a real conflict, the battle going on. Next verse. He says, they are in conflict with each other. We read that. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Because of this battle, you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We shouldn't do whatever we want. Isn't this amazing that 2,000 years ago, people were saying the same things we do today? Well, I just want to do whatever I think feels right. I want to do whatever. It doesn't matter. It's my body. 2,000 years. This has been in the Bible the whole time. Same argument going, no, no, you can't do whatever you want. You're not to do whatever you want. You see, the idea that I can do whatever I want, it's my body, that's not a Christian idea. That's an American idea. And American ideas are not the same thing as Christian ideas. Because I've met Christians who aren't Americans, and you'd be amazed on how all of them balk at the independent mindset of American Christians. Well, we do what I want whenever we want. That's not a Christian thing. There's no such thing as a self-proclaimed autonomy, and we do what we want when we want. No, it's not a Jesus thing because we were bought at a price. And so we're to honor him with our bodies. And because of that, there's this conflict between spirit and the flesh, and we, can't, we shouldn't do whatever we want. And I did misspeak a second ago because notice Paul says you're not to do whatever you want, more, more like you shouldn't do what you want. But notice he doesn't say you can't do whatever you want. And this is important because I had authority problems. Anybody else ever have authority problems? You're Baptist, so I know every single one of you have had authority problems. That's a Baptist thing, okay? We don't want people telling us what to do. That's why we're Baptist. We do what we want. We don't want anybody else telling us different. And when somebody tells me you can't do that, do you know what I think automatically? Oh yeah? Watch me. Doesn't matter what it is. It sounds like a challenge. I feel like they're challenging me on on what I'm capable of. So you can. I'll be like, oh, yeah, watch me. I bet you I can. But rather than saying you can't, Paul is saying you shouldn't. Because of course you can. He's saying you shouldn't do these things. And perhaps, maybe just perhaps that's a communication breakdown you're having with your children or your grandchildren. The verse says I can't or shouldn't. Start saying you shouldn't, and they may lean in to hear why. You say, you can't. It may just be a challenge. But when someone tells me, says, you shouldn't do this, I want to know why. I'm inquisitive. I go, yeah, why? Let me hear your thoughts on it. 
Paul says, so you shouldn't do it because your flesh is going to lead you somewhere. And look, he, and he lists out what these conflicts are. You'll see, here he goes. He says, the acts of flesh are obvious. They're obvious? Yeah, they're obvious. Here they are. He says, sexual morality and sexual morality, comma, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies. I know, it's in the Bible. Orgies and the like. So I could go on and on and talk about this all day, what it's clear. And listen, I'm not picking on sexual sins, but our entire series is about sex. So we're highlighting them. We'll talk about the other ones on a different time. But the Bible is very clear about the acts. See, this is called the acts of the flesh, which is opposed to the spirit. You with me? This is opposed to the spirit. And they're obvious, he says. And he lists out these things. And I don't like the list as much as you don't like it. I don't like this list of 15 things. You know why? Because I've never enjoyed anything that called me a sinner. Have you? I've never been enjoyed being told I was wrong and that I'm a sinner. But when I look at that list and I go, wow, have, have I ever hated or ever been jealous? or yeah. yeah, I don't like the fact that I'm a sinner either. But just because I don't like something, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not good for me at the same time. For instance, I may not like taking medicine, but if I'm sick, do I take medicine to get better? Yes, what I like doesn't always, it doesn't always matter what I like if I'm looking at health and what's the best thing for me. And interestingly enough, God's never asked us what we prefer. How do you want to handle this? God just lists out, here's what you don't, these, these don't work. And I need you to hear what we're going to talk about is that God wants to teach you how to have healthy expressions or how to walk in the spirit, the things that are going to be good for you versus the things that aren't going to be good for you. And sexual morality it's sexual sin in general. It's anything outside of marriage. But Paul knows, I guess he was writing this for 2,000 years later, that if he didn't keep going, we'd be like, well, it doesn't mean this, Paul. It must, you, you, you didn't cover this. He's like, hold on. Let me make sure for those of you who want to get out of this, let me cover it all of it. So sexual morality is anything outside of marriage. Impurity literally means uncleanliness. He's like, what, well, do you got to take a bath? No, no, it's in a specific context here. It speaks to the, the, the defilement, the defilement of sexual sin and the separation of God it brings. You say, Brian, sexual sin brings separation with God? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, nobody's ever told you that. Yes, it's defilement. It's, not a, it's impurity. It's not a good thing. And then debauchery. One scholar defines debauchery as a love of sin so reckless and so audacious that a man ceases to care what God or man thinks of his actions. You ever met somebody there? And then you have orgies. This is linked to the drunkenness. It's linked to, to, to the alcohol. And it speaks to the parties and the festivals they would have in honoring a God. Remember, they'd get together, they'd celebrate this certain idol, this certain God. Everybody would just drink publicly and open, have this big festival and... Yep, they would do everything else publicly and opening and honoring to this, to this God. When you don't think the Bible speaks to our culture, you need to know theirs was far worse, far worse of what was done publicly and openly and without shame. And then he says, and alike. And he says, I could go on and on and on with these lists. But four of these speak to sexual sins. 
What this tells me and this probably tells you is that Paul wasn't naive about what was going on in the church and in their culture. He knew what people's struggles were and he was willing to deal with them and he was willing to speak openly about them. You see, that is the only way we can truly help people who are struggling in sin is if we're open and honest about the reality of it, if we're open and honest that it exists. Because if we create an environment in a church or in your home where people are ashamed and can't talk and be honest, no wonder they're walking away and running to the first group that affirms them. No wonder they're walking away to their home by themselves, privately, broken on the inside because they don't feel like anybody will understand because we pretend we have it together. No wonder people struggle. No wonder people are hurting. But what we are told is that every person will have conflict in these areas. Every person will be tempted in these areas. And we don't need to understand why someone's temptation is different than your temptation. Why do we need to dive into that? What we need to understand is that people are different and God has made us differently and every single human being will be tempted and struggle with the flesh versus the spirit. And I need you to know that just because you feel a certain way, just because you think certain things, just because you don't understand them doesn't mean as an answer, it could just be temptation and sin pulling at you. Just know there's nothing wrong with you. Just know that everybody goes through those things. But just don't talk about them. There's a real battle going on. And shame on us, church for sending teenagers and adults into shame, scared to speak up and making them feel like something is wrong and broken inside of them. When we've been told this whole time there's a conflict and a war battling. Shame on us. See, the Bible says we're at war. And we need to teach. You need to know, I need to know to expect it. The temptation, expect the conflict, expect the battle, because you're at war with it, every single one of us. And if you're struggling in these areas, you younger people too, or I don't care how old you are, if you're struggling, remember that Jesus was tempted. Did Jesus sin? No, therefore temptations are not sin. So understand those things you think, those ways you feel, that doesn't matter where it comes from, just the reality of temptation is not sinning. And understand every single human being on this planet has thoughts they wish they didn't have, has temptations they wish they didn't have, and they have things they're like, where did that even come from? But I rebuke that in the name of Jesus Christ and we're gonna move on. I'm not gonna dwell in that. I'm not going to sit in that. I'm not going to wonder where that can go. I'm not going to let that thought process just keep going and going until I'm now enticed and encouraged to do it. I'm going to go ahead and push that away and move on in my life because God has not given us free reign. There is a thing called sin. And as a church, we can never affirm your sin. We can never pretend it's not a big deal or it's not important because we have a crucified Savior who tells us different. But what we can do is understand that you're dealing with it because we're dealing with it, and we want to help you walk to a new life in Christ. Remember, we talked about that last week. Come as you are, but you can't stay there. Because this, this is the part, well, I don't think any of us like. Look at verse B, 21B. Paul says, I warn you, as I did before, He's told him before that those who live like this will not, will not inherit the kingdom 
of God. To which, if you're like me, we don't like it. But a warning is a warning for a reason. He reminds us of the consequences of sin and living a life of sin. It's not okay. And this is one of those verses you probably don't like. I don't either. I'll be honest with you. I looked at 11 different scholarly commentaries, which means they're all written by PhD types, New Testament scholars. I looked at 11 different commentaries to try to get out of this verse. I do it every time. Like, maybe it doesn't say that. Maybe I'm misreading it. 11. But it says what it says. And there actually is nobody who says, well, maybe it says what it says. Because a warning is a warning. And you may think, well, hold on, hold on, wait. I thought I was saved by faith through grace. If I'm saved by grace through faith, then what does it matter what I do? Remember, Paul's already made the argument. Just because you're saved by grace doesn't mean you can do whatever you want when you want. If Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life, then you're not the Lord and Savior of your life. You you don't get to direct what you do and what you don't do. If you've been purchased and redeemed out of sin, why would you stay in sin? You, You can't be saved from and then live in. You're either saved from sin, and does that mean I'm perfect? No. But you know, there's a difference, and you know this. You've lived long enough. There's a difference between choosing to live in a life of sin versus sinning, isn't there? There's a difference between letting your sin consume you and just giving in to it. It's like, I don't even care. This is me. I'm just going to own it. You see, we've been called out of our sin. And a warning is a warning. That's why it's there. For instance, when I tell my kids, don't run in the parking lot, you may get hit by a car. They say, Ron, that's traumatic. That's mean. I mean, you don't want your kids to be thinking about getting hit by a car. No, a warning is a warning for a reason. I don't want them to get hurt. Does that make sense? Don't run in the parking lot. I don't want you to get hit by a car. Now, Troy could turn around and say, well, Dad, what if? Isn't that what we like to do? We like to what if everything. He could give me all sorts of hypothetical scenarios. But can we be clear that warnings don't work like that? A warning says, danger ahead, stop. You don't pull up to a stop sign and go, well, what if? It's not how warnings work. Danger, cliff. Well, what if? It's not how they work. A warning is saying danger ahead. Warnings don't cover hypothetical. Paul is saying, look, sin is a really big deal. And those people who have given themselves over to sin, those people who have not given themselves over to Christ, because you can't give yourself over to sin in Christ, it doesn't work that way. You only have one person. You give yourself to Christ or you give yourself to sin. Paul said those who have given themselves to Christ, they're not going to want to be in that. Those who've given them life to Christ, well, I mean, their life to sin, they're choosing to stay in it. You're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking with flesh. You see, we talked about it last week. The Bible is very clear that life change is not an option. And the Bible isn't interested in playing how close to sin can I get before it's sin. The Bible isn't interested in saying how much sin is okay before it's not okay. Would you ever encourage your kids to do something like that? No. The Bible isn't interested. Listen, this is important. The Bible is not interested in teaching you how to be an unhealthy Christian. But it's very concerned with teaching you how to become a healthy child of God. 
And as a church, that's why we have to take sin serious. Because we love them, and we don't want them to miss out on the kingdom of God. I can't tell you, loving people isn't embracing a life of sin. Loving them is wanting them to experience the kingdom of God. And if you don't agree with me, we have a very different definition of love. Love is about wanting people to experience the best they can possibly experience. And I don't believe you can experience the best possible life without God. But I'm a pastor, but maybe you believe the same thing. And so we must create environments as churches where people can be honest and open about their struggles. We must be willing to deal with messes and get dirty and just like, man, this is hard and uncomfortable so other people can experience a life with Christ. And if this is your church home, I need, I need you to lean in for a minute and I just need you to listen. Because this must create urgency with inside of you. We have to get serious about God's work. We got to get off the sidelines. We have to stop complaining. We have to stop letting Satan use us for his purposes and get on board with what God is doing in this world. Because sin is serious. And sin has consequences. But we don't have to live in it. And even though there's a constant tug of war, we want to help people experience the life-giving option of Jesus Christ. We want to experience forgiveness and redemption and all that comes with it. So you don't have to give in to the flesh because Paul says, verse 22, but, it's contrast, he's comparing, but the fruits of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. And here's the amazing thing about this verse. So many people memorize it, but they, th they think it comes out of a vacuum, as if it's just a memory verse. But the whole reason for this list is it's comparing to what you shouldn't do, the acts of the flesh. Here's what not to do, the other ones. Here's what you should be doing. The fruit of the Spirit is how you walk by the Spirit. This is, what we, this is what we strive for. And young ladies, perhaps young boys, I need you to see something. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So if you're a young lady, you will hear eventually, if you love me, you will... Everybody filled in the blank, right? Yeah. If you love me, you will... Love doesn't look like sexual morality. Love will lead to peace, joy, forbearance, kindness, goodness, self-control. You see, our culture has this the idea of love leads to sex. They're not the same thing. We talked about that in week one. But if somebody loved you, they would respect you. They wouldn't lead you to acts of flesh. They would lead you to a life in the spirit. If someone loves you, they will not entice you to sin. They will show peace, kindness, gentleness. And you say, well, listen, I promise you, I don't have an ulterior agenda. They do. Do you understand? Or don't be uncomfortable. It's true. Y'all grew up. They do have an ulterior motive. I do not. I want to help you. And this is what the scriptures say. Love will lead to other things, gentleness and peace. Biblical love does not look like walking in the flesh. Paul tells us this. He said, those who belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
You see, we crucify the flesh and those passions and desire. Paul's saying that just because you feel like doing something, just because you think about something, doesn't mean you should automatically do it. The conflict is real. So there is a 100% probability that there, there is a 100% probability that you're going to feel things in this life that you shouldn't do. And your feelings don't justify you doing things contrary to God's will for your life. So just because you feel a certain way has nothing to do with should you do it. Next time you get stuck in traffic, you'll amen that, won't you? I know what I feel like doing right now in this traffic, and I know what I shouldn't do as well. And let me ask you a question. Does crucifying the flesh sound easy or painless? No, it sounds horrible, doesn't it? You see, one scholar says, Paul described here in terms of this dual process of mortification, the daily dying to the flesh, and vivification. It's a word that only Doug knows, I'm pretty sure. But means continuous growth and grace through the new life and spirit. So we have this thing where we have to die to the flesh, but we have to grow in the spirit. We're like, well, I don't want to die to the flesh. You're not given that option. We die to the flesh and we grow in the spirit. This is the daily battle we face. I die to the flesh and I grow in the spirit. And we fight. And we battle. Will it be easy? Nope. But it'll get easier. Is it fair? Nope. Nobody ever said life was fair, did they? More importantly, can you win? Yes. There's victory in Jesus Christ. Look what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, and let me explain something to you. When you're denying yourself, when you're dying your flesh, when you're denying your wants, when you're dying what you feel is natural and all that other good stuff, it's going to feel like you're suffering. Like, Brian, I don't want to suffer. Listen, there's no avoiding suffering in this world, right? It's a reality. No matter how much we try to medicate it away, pain and suffering is a part of our experience as being human beings. It's just real. It says, so your present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul says, yeah, I know it's hard, but, but has nothing compared to what God will do. It's nothing compared. The suffering you're experiencing now, the hardships you're experiencing now, it's nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. And yes, the glory in heaven, but what I honestly believe because I've experienced it, this is truth now because it's how I feel, that means it's true. Okay, listen, the glory that we revealed also means the glory that we revealed in your life by following him. Those present suffering are nothing compared to what God's gonna do with you what God can do to you because my life is to be lived by the glory of God everything I should do to be for his glory and show his glory but those sufferings are not worth comparing to what he will that will be revealed in us and through us and for us I'm telling you those sufferings those things you say no to that hard stuff is nothing compared to the goodness that you will experience you'll be able to look back and go ah I get it Oh, and I'm so thankful because God is still in the business of doing miracles. I promise you. So I'm just going to give you a couple of ways to victory. Number one, this is the most important. You must be born again. The other things we're going to talk about may be kind of helpful to you, but if you haven't given Jesus Christ your life, that's, that's the only thing I have for you. It all starts with that. Turning your life over to him, becoming a Christian, experiencing the life of God, that, that is the number one 
only place to start as far as I'm concerned is giving it to him. Because he's claimed victory over your sin. He'll forgive you from your sin. Forgiveness at the end of the day is what you need. He will give you that. So you have to be born again. Give him your life. And remember, being born again or being a Christian isn't, because, isn't just coming to church. It's not that your parents brought you here, so you went through RAs, and you went through GAs, and you went through preschool, and you went through elementary. That's not becoming a Christian. Being a Christian is when you're confessing and you're accepting Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior. Good news to share. Troy did that last night. Yeah, pretty exciting, right? We'll tell that story the other day. But yeah, clap on that. Yeah. And if you haven't done it, we'd love to clap for you. But, but Troy, he did. He gave his life to Christ last night, and it was really, really cool. So I want you to experience that as well. But number two, we'll talk about some practical steps. I want you to work on self-control. Work on self-control. doesn't matter how old you are. The younger you are, the sooner you get this under control, the better off your life will be. Because Paul tells us that self-control is not only possible, he says it's a fruit of the Spirit, which means self-control is available and it's in your reach, it's in your grasp. You just gotta, gotta work towards it. Self-control comes through a spiritual discipline. And if you're single, develop it now. Those urges, those temptations you feel will not stop just because you get married. All right, look, I'll just tell you a story. I thought when I got married that all temptations to deal with sexual stuff would go away. Never have to worry about it again. Doesn't work that way. I'm just letting you know. Just because you get married doesn't mean something else turns off or, or sin stops trying to tempt you. It's still there. I mean, what story do you want to tell? Think about it. Let's say you were trying to marry a spouse or you met someone. They say, listen, I could never control myself. I know I've been all over the place. I know I've done all this stuff. But once we get married, it'll be different. You know why that doesn't work? Because you've started a diet every Monday for the past three years, haven't you? Yeah, just because you say something's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. So we develop self-control. Yeah, everybody, you're going to need it later on. You start it now. See, self-control is an everybody thing, but especially a Christian thing. The only way to stay and remain sexually pure, whether you're married, not married, whatever that looks like, is through self-control. We are told we are not to do whatever we want to do. So self-control is the restraint. And listen, I'm very sensitive to sexual sins. Just wait to email me till this whole series is over. But nobody gets a pass for a lack of self-control. Because Paul says it's available. So we don't get a pass for not developing it, not working towards it. Because there isn't a chance in the world, neither I would you, would tell any 18-year-old man, young man, ah, just go do whatever you want, whenever you want, whatever you feel like. No, 18-year-olds, they need men, need self-control, don't they? Of course they do. Everybody does. And I made a decision years ago that I'd live under biblical authority, whether I like it or not. And I won't debate with you nurture versus nature. If somebody's born a certain way or I'm not naive to what sin can do and what sin can tempt you with. I'm not naive to what the enemy wants to tell you. I don't want to have a conversation about those things. What I think we need to change the conversation to as Christians is simple self-control. We all need it. We all want our son-in-laws to have it or our daughter-in-laws to have it. We all want our spouses to have it. The conversation needs to be about fruits of the Spirit. What is available? 
self-control. And how do we develop it? You're not going to have to write this down. you remember it. Fasting. I know, it's like, it's like cussing in a Baptist church, isn't it? Fasting. Like, I don't, I don't know. Dallas Willard says, say no to the things you can to learn how to say no to the things you can't. That is so important to hear. Fasting is learning, excuse me, fasting is saying no to the things you can to learn how to say no to the things you can't. The problem is self-control. And I know how you feel, especially Scott. Check this out. So last week was, was um, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And I sent this to Scott. It was one of those pastor jokes. Like, this is our super spiritual conversations. This was a Sunday. I said, Scott, do you think Yom Kippur is a paid day off? Our faith has Jewish roots. And Scott said, oh, yeah, I think that is what God. Now, you got to love the cleverness. If you don't get it, we'll explain it to you later. But you got to love the cleverness here. God would want us to do. Here's what I said then. But you got to fast then. Next slide. I'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. True story, can't make this up. This was actually our texting conversations. And maybe you feel the same way. But the reason why we fast is because it's a spiritual discipline and it builds a spirit life. Fasting is the way you learn self-control, whether it's from food or whether it's things like that. The problem is we don't like saying no. We don't like being told no. We don't want to live with that feeling of the dis... We'll deal with that another time. But when you fast... You're learning what no feels like. You're learning what that urge to, to kind of deal with it small chunks at a time. So then you can deal with the larger ones. But fasting. Number three, some practical advice, ways to victory, is try to have a joyful perspective. I tried to word this a bunch of different ways, and I thought of some of you, so I put try. First, I have have, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know if that's possible. So we'll put try to have a joyful perspective perspective. In other words, what I want to ask you to do is tap into the fruit of the Spirit called joy. Focus on the good you're doing, not what you're saying no to. Don't focus on what you aren't doing. Focus on what you are doing. For instance, don't focus on what you and your boyfriend aren't doing. Focus on what you and your husband will do. Think about it this way. Far too often we just focus on the negative, don't we? And being negative is not a spiritual gift. Did you know that? Being critical negative, it's not of God. It's not a spiritual gift. And it's not helpful for anybody. But think about it. When you're in a diet, what do you think about? Do you think about all the foods you can't eat or all the foods you can eat? Oh, can't. Why? There's a thousand other things you can eat, but we would rather focus on what you can't have. We're negative. How is focusing on negative things going to produce positive results? It it won't. Focus on the positive. Focus on the good. Focus on the fact that you're honoring God with your body. You're honoring God with your actions. Focus on the good things. Number four, lastly, set boundaries. Look at what Jesus says here. Next verse to Matthew. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We're like, yeah, Jesus, we knew that. He says, but I tell you that anyone, do I have to be married? No. Anyone. Well, what if I'm not married? Is it talking to me? Yes. What if I'm 16? Yeah. 13? Yeah. 70? Yes. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, or a man, okay, 
be gender inclusive there, woman or man, lustfully has already committed adultery within, his, within her in his heart. What, Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, you thought I meant if, you just, if you're married and you go and sleep with someone, that's adultery. Jesus says, no, if you look at anybody with lust, you've already committed adultery. Which said, um, yeah, he's not done. Don't worry, it gets worse. And Darcy with his heart, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. And you thought I was harsh, right? This is Jesus. Gouge it out and throw it away. Don't even save it and try to put it back in again. Pull your eye out, throw it in the trash. He's not done. Just let you know. Next. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into. Ooh, evidently he takes this serious. Hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, what do you do with it? Cut it off and throw it away because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Do you know I've read this verse so many times, but I just now noticed that he says throw it away. I mean, he has to add that extra step, doesn't he? doesn't say gouge it and leave it. Gouge it and throw it away, like take a thing. Now, I'm not going to explain to you everything about this. We're just going to assume that what Jesus is saying here is set boundaries. Would you agree with me? It's a whole lot better than that, right? We're pretty sure that's not what he's saying. He's just going, we'll talk about that a different day. But the point is, he's telling you to set boundaries. Jesus wasn't naive about our temptations of sin and lust and sexual morality. So he says, set boundaries. If something's causing you to sin, get away from it. If someone is causing you to sin, get away from it. If something is causing you to sin, get away from it. And you understand this? If I was on a diet, would it be wise for me to go to Pizza Hut's buffet and go, don't worry, I'm just going to get a salad? You, if you knew me, it's not happening. There's zero chance I wouldn't eat less than 15 pieces of pizza. You're like, Brian, you wouldn't eat that much? Yeah, I would. Zero chance diet or not. I couldn't go. I met a man who once told me that he struggled with sexual morality a pretty bad growing up and, and stuff like that. And so he made a commitment to him and his wife that he never stayed in the living room by himself because he knew in the middle of the night or at night, his wife would go to bed a little bit early. So he knew that if he were to be out there by himself, he would be tempted and enticed for pornography. So rather than being stuck in pornography, rather than being tempted with pornography, when his wife went to bed, guess where he went? Straight to bed with her. Boundaries. And you say, well, Brian, I couldn't talk to my wife about that. Well, don't, just set the boundaries. Talk to another guy. Talk to another person. Have an accountability person. If your relationship with your spouse isn't where you can be open and honest about that, and, and most people's aren't, if we're honest, then talk to somebody else who can, and you just create the boundaries and start doing new practices. You see, boundaries are there to protect, to stay on course. You put up boundaries to protect yourself so you don't get enticed and don't even struggle in it. For instance, if you know you're going to fall into sin, if you go to a bar or a club, don't go. Setting up boundaries is saying, we're not gonna get in the back seat together in the dark parking lot. In fact, we're not gonna go in the dark parking lot, period. That's the boundary. Don't try to figure it out once you're there. Figure it out before you even think about going there. Don't go into the house for the nightcap. Don't go to lunch with that coworker saying, oh, we're just friends. Set boundaries. 
put blockers on your phones. Every Apple phone has an ability to stop explicit sites. Do you know that? Every iPad. And, for, and listen, listen, if you have a teenager, please listen, or a 10-year-old and above, or 9-year-old, please put blockers on your phones, on the computers. Set up boundaries to protect your kids because the other people on the internet do not care about your kids. So protect them. And I can't tell you how many people have ignored me on this, and I can't tell you how many people have come to me broken about what their 10-year-old was looking at. And they said, just like you, well, not mine. Mm-hmm. Until it is. And once you see that, can you take it back? Nope. Put up boundaries. Set boundaries. If you're single, set boundaries with yourself and God. If you're married, set boundaries and talk in advance what's okay and what's not okay. And listen, if, if, if you're afraid to talk to your spouse about that, talk with somebody that you do know, someone that, that you can talk to, accountability partner. And listen, whoever you are, I'll pray and fast with you. Whatever you got going on, I'll work through it with you. And parents, please set boundaries. This is important. I know we're going long, but this is important to talk about. It was either two series or a long, two, two weeks or a little bit longer this week. So I chose a little bit longer this week. But if you're a parent, please set boundaries because the world is very different than it was when you grew up. For many of you, back when you grew up, the culture was different. There was an agreed-upon morality, meaning even if you didn't talk about it with your kids, the culture agreed with you about what is right and wrong. There is no agreed-upon morality any longer. So if you're not talking to them about what's right and wrong, somebody is telling them their version of right and wrong. And we need to be proactive when it comes to these things with our kids and our grandkids. So set boundaries. And when you're dating, please set boundaries in advance. Don't leave it to chance. Let the person you know up front, here's my boundaries. And if you're a teenager, you have parents, teenagers, set boundaries with your kids. Just talk to them about it. Dads, talk to about it with your daughters. Talk to about it with your sons. Just remember, dads, if you don't, their boyfriend will. Who do you want setting the boundaries? Hmm? I got a little girl. I'm telling you, I know who wants to have that conversation. Me, not whoever him may be. So talk to him, set boundaries because nobody is above sexual morality. Nobody's above it. And the best way to live is understand that you and I both could fall into it if we don't protect ourselves. If we're not aware of the conflict that's raging between all of us. There's a war going on. So set up boundaries and be joyful in your walk with the Lord. And understand that grace is available for all. You can be forgiven from your sexual sins, but sexual sins tend to be very unforgiving. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, Lord. And as we think about and talk about sex and morality, it, it just steps on all of our toes and is uncomfortable. But Father, what we want to focus on that you tell us to walk by your spirit. You tell us to be led by your spirit. You tell us that there's this conflict going on and we have to choose. So Father, we make a choice today to follow you. We make a choice today to let your spirit lead. Lord, it's scary. It's the unknown of what we might miss out on or what our friends may think or what that person may do. But Lord, we trust you. So we give it to you. And we're just going to pray and we're going to sing, Lord, just let your spirit lead. 
Listen, this last song is for you. And I don't know where you're at, but I just hope that your prayer today is, is, is this next song, that just pray out to God to let his spirit lead. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Just pull and tug on our heart. Allow us to throw out that stuff. Throw those things away that are causing us to stumble and sin. In the name of Jesus.